even if some of these experiences get played in the group, I or other people are providing a different outcome. They begin to internalize a, a different set of good experiences. There's a freeing in the body and a freeing in the self. All that energy used to stifle experience is now used to have experience. And that's an integrative experience. And suddenly that energy is now part of a life force that can lead to creativity, to humor, to vitality. The group suddenly feels lively. It feels like room, there's emotional room. In the group. What was feeling dead before and gloomy and why am I in this group? You know, no, another group. Suddenly it feels like endless possibilities. That's Dr. Ronnie Levine, today's guest on the Group Dynamics Dispatch. Welcome to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. I'm Angelo Siliberti, and I'm excited to share with you these conversations that explore what it means to live and grow within groups, from our early lives to our professional role as leaders. In these episodes, you will hear from some of the key figures practicing and writing about group dynamics from around the country and the world. It's our hope that these dialogues will inform and challenge so that we can all learn more about the rediscovery of self and other that can occur through rich emotional engagement in group. Today's guest is Dr. Ronnie Levine. Dr. Levine received her PhD in clinical psychology from the Derner Institute at Adelphi University. A Harvard Fellow and a graduate of the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, Dr. Levine has been practicing for over 35 years with individuals, couples, and groups, as well as offering individual and group supervision. Influenced by Lou Ormont, modern psychoanalysis, object relations, and relational theories, she enjoys teaching and has been a faculty member for a number of medical schools, as well as the Center for Group Studies and the Group Training Program for the Eastern Group Psychotherapy Society. Dr. Levine has served on the boards of the EGPS, the AGPA, and the editorial committee of the International Journal of Group Psychotherapy. A fellow of the AGPA, Dr. Levine regularly presents both nationally and internationally, and has led training workshops in St. Petersburg, London, Belfast, Lisbon, Cartagena, and Rovinge. Her group articles include Treating Idealized Hope and Hopelessness, Modern Psychoanalysis and Leslie Rosenthal, Progressing While Regressing in Relationships, a Modern Psychoanalytic Perspective on Group Therapy, and most recently, a group analyst's perspective on the Trump-Clinton election and aftermath. All are available in the International Journal of Group Psychotherapy. This May, Dr. Levine has been honored as a chosen respondent for the annual Folks Lecture, sponsored by the Group Analysis Society in London. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Ronnie Levine. Welcome to the podcast, Ronnie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you on. So first off, would you be willing to tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into group and psychoanalysis? Well, I was a graduate student in clinical psychology at Adelphi. And just the last year that I was there, my class was invited to meet Lou Ormont. So we had a, 
a workshop with him just before I was about to move to Boston, actually, for my internship at McLean's Hospital. And he was extraordinary. At that time, when I was in graduate school, the uh, general way of working with people was more interpretive. It was really dominated by psychoanalytic program, ego psychology, object relations was just starting, self-psychology was just starting. But even those, mainly inside-oriented, was the way that people or interpretation was the major uh, intervention. And there was Lou. Lou, who was inspired by theater and inspired by Spotnitz and inspired by a whole different way of using the cell. There he was. Instead of talking from his intellect, he used himself to facilitate emotional communication in the, in the class, which was an unusual class. My class was a class that was hard to get into the program, and they usually they overaccepted people to make sure they had their number. And my particular year, everybody accepted. So we kind of felt like unwanted multiple births. And it affected the process of the group for many years. And within one minute, it seemed, Lou analyzed the whole thing and was having us talking in a way we hadn't in the years that I was there. And we, I felt alive. I felt a vibrancy. I felt a sense of self. And he had a wonderful sense of humor. And the way he used self and facilitated the group, I said, I'd like to be like that. That's who I think I am. Like it connected more of that than the other very good supervisors, but never quite felt a resonance that I felt with Lou. Now, I was on my way to Boston at that time to do my internship, but I thought if I ever came back to New York, I would join a group, and I did. I joined a group uh, when I, I wasn't sure if I was going to move back, but when I decided to, uh, within a month, I called him up and joined a group, and I was with him uh, for decades, both in uh, group therapy and group training, and I, he had a profound influence in my life. I've had many influence of different orientations, different wonderful supervisors, even during the time I was with Lou. But I, have, I would say he was the, uh, one of the most significant in his uh, vibrancy and his uh, inspiration to use myself to, in how I can conduct the individual and group and cup all kinds of treatment and teaching as well. Mm. It's like his, his presence and his playfulness and his vibrancy just gave you permission to just be yes. you and to let right. you use you. That's right. It was just wonder. It was freeing, liberating. You know, at that time, counter-transference even was suspect, especially when I moved to Boston. New York already was comfortable with it. But Boston at the time, it was considered more of a, um, an obstruction that you subjective counter-transference that you had to... Uh, the pathology that you had to make sense of in your analysis. And of course, there is that part. But uh, he, along with Winnicott and many other object relations theorists, Racker and such, that was becoming very popular, was to use the self. Of course, this is, you know, uh, normalized and expanded both in, in psychotherapy all around the world now and psychoanalysis, the use of self. But uh, he had an unusual way, uh, and still, I think, represents an usual way of using the self, which I think is very creative and very vibrant. Well, it seems like also just using his feelings. Yes. I, was, I was struck before how you were talking about interpretation and insight. It all sounds very heady, but then there's right. Lou. 
And then there was Lou. Yeah, yeah, right. it, it felt very, you know, it's liberating. You say that his approach and, and the moderns in general, which I found very liber- freeing, is that instead of having to sit there and say something smart to the therapist, it kind of relieves you of this pressure to say a smart thought. Your job is to help facilitate people to talk and find out what's getting in the way of talking and having their thoughts and feelings. The uh, patient tells you what their thoughts rather than you tell them. So the, uh, I found that was freeing when I understood that I didn't have to uh, come up with something, you know, that the pressure to say something smart was the only way that, uh, to form insight that would then somehow uh, free people of, their, of whatever traps or self-imposed traps and patterns. This was a whole new approach of relating that I just loved. Fish to water. Uh-huh. Just automatic. Automatic. It's like uh, the relieved of the pressure to be clever, and it doesn't right. really help anyway, actually. No, no. Right? And so how did kind of being exposed to this and just working with your counter-transference and using yourself, how did all of that kind of intersect with some of the things you were experiencing clinically early on in your career and finding what you found to be helpful? Well, I was very interested from the get-go in how emotional communication, and I still am, uh, it's really, uh, it gets communicated, and it's really kind of the arc in almost all my papers that I write, even if they're on entirely different subjects, whether it's uh, idealized hope or progressing while regressing or Trump and the uh, political interactions. I'm interested in how primitive emotional communication gets communicated. I mentioned the article on the Leslie Rosenthal article where I was with a mute patient. And this is before I, uh, I was taught projective identification. Suddenly, I under, uh, a person who didn't talk, an adolescent young teenager uh, who was mute, couldn't get her to talk, and I didn't know what to do. And suddenly, I had a thought that I was going crazy. And then it occurred to me, maybe that's what her thought is. And I said, you're afraid of going crazy? And she said, yes. My mother speaks to light bulbs, and I don't want to be like her. And then we began to talk, and I thought, this was profound. How did this person who didn't talk, who was withdrawn from school for three months and stopped speaking, how did I get that idea? And it really became a life work of how emotional communication gets transmitted and primitive communication. And what can I do as a clinician to, uh, to invite it? to understand it and transform it to something more in control, more manageable, more effective, more creative, more integrative. So that, that's what I became interested in. I'm still interested. I haven't stopped becoming interested in that. Mm-hmm. In fact, my uh, workshops are, are related around that. If it's not love and hate, it's becoming comfortable with uncomfortable feelings. It's all about becoming a sturdy, integrated self by being able to contain and hold a wide range of uncomfortable feelings and seeing if that by doing that can, can create a kind of integration and sturdiness in a self and an ability to have relationships. So the more resilient the therapist's sense of self is, the better you're just able to use all that, those feelings, the full right. range. It goes both ways. It's not just the patient. Uh, if the, the more the therapist is able to be comfortable with the feelings in the room, 
with myself and with the patient's feeling, the more effective I am. Either I can, I can understand what's coming from the person, what's me, uh, what's being communicated, and how I can utilize. I learned like the notes of a piano, what I'm being touched that I might be able to say or do that will help facilitate what is called progressive emotional communication. Mm. Well, your story makes me smile because it seems like that moment that you had with that young patient, that moment of recognition and how yeah. immediately you guys became alive together. Right. So it's just like that moment with Lou at school. Yeah. Yes. It was like that. Yeah. It was a kind of a, a meeting, meeting where she was. I just understood her experience. It was like it was installed in me. Well, it was just like you just got something about it. Yes. Yes. What she feels. Said, what How she did that feels. happen? So I've been spending the last 40 plus years trying to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that makes me think about your work with managing love and hate. Yeah. And it seems like that's been a, a really consistent thing that you have been presenting on and exploring. And I wondered if you might say a little bit about that topic and what's uh, inspired you so much about it for all of these years. I'm interested in how to have a self, both for myself and the people I work with. It's a lifelong journey that has vulnerabilities, and sometimes the self is a little weaker, and sometimes it's more robust. And I'm very interested in uh, developing that, to strengthening that in myself and, every, and people I work with. Love and hate are the uh, most primary experiences that we have in both having a self and having relationships. It takes a bit of courage to have a self, to be able to voice your thoughts and feelings, to identify your thoughts and feelings uh, in a relationship where you don't sacrifice yourself to have a relationship or sacrifice the other so you can be in it. So it requires a capacity to have your feelings, to manage your feelings effectively, to not sacrifice yourself, as I said, or sacrifice the other. So it's very interesting in this kind of dynamic interactional experience. You know, people are scared of aggression often. I used when I was running these workshops, people, leaders, are afraid of aggression. They're afraid of all the things uh, that our patients are afraid of. They have the same toxic interjects that our patients have that I have. We all have. So people are scared to engage and often uh, do things to stop feelings. Now we do this consciously, unconsciously so we can't, it's part of the work to study when, when we're uh, interfering with it and when we're allowing it to happen. But the more uh, we're able as leaders to uh, be available to the experience, the more we can work effectively. So I became very interested in it. You know, with the moderns, they see the, uh, the sense of self is very much affected by how a person manages their aggression and not attacking their mind and their sense of self, but uh, having the aggression managed effectively uh, so that it's not destro destroying their relationships or themselves. So uh, I was influenced in part by that, influenced by the uh, object relations people, and interested in Winnicott, I was interested in Klein. A lot of people I was interested in that looked at aggression Last year, I presented uh, at AGPA on aggression on a panel 
I was taking a slant of um, when is it, I was asked by Joe Shea, who was the chair, when can it be toxic? So it reminded me of the Nietzsche famous quote, which is, um, that doesn't kill you will make you stronger. And I never felt comfortable with that. Although I think the moderns are very comfortable with that, and many analysts are, because I think what we do, I think it can get you stronger, but it can also get you sick. Can people get damaged? If they're not protected, they can be scapegoated, they can be overwhelmed, they can be flooded. Even if they're not the target of aggression in a group, just by being a bystander, it could be frightening both uh, and create discomfort by, not, by watching, by not doing anything. By, and yet, it can be very good to have, have these experiences. It can be, create resilience. It can make you sturdier. It can help create a voice. So I talked about how last year, how uh, aggression can work both ways and that we try as leaders to attend to uh, the aggression to, in a sense, to create the right optimal condition, the best we can do. That in groups, we can't avoid anger and aggression. It creeps into the group and our job is to uh, provide a situation where we can metabolize, help integrate these feelings, and help the group and the individuals uh, manage the feelings most effectively as they can and create the right amount of dose. Hmm. It's a work in progress. Right. And I was actually wondering if you would say a little bit about how you gauge that. How do I gauge so it's not dysregulated and flooded? Yes, exactly. Well, I have to be interested in in, uh, hearing what people are telling me. Shut up, you're talking too much. Or, you know, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? I, I get instructed all the time. Or I see some, I sometimes I have to step in. I have to stop a group from bullying. Or I have to educate a group member of how to express their anger in a productive way, not a destructive way. Or whether the anger is masking a vulnerability. Or is there another way of asserting themselves which is not murderously destructive? I have to be all kinds of, of hats in here. I have to, uh, it's a traffic conductor as, as well as a maturational agent. Mm-hmm. I have to yes. welcome aggression, but the right amount of aggression. It's, a, uh, it's an interesting project, interesting journey. And each group and each individual and each subgroup, subgroup is different. And even in the course of a session or in a different group phase, it's going to be different of what a group member or subgroup or group can handle or manage. It's like being a parent. Right. In some ways, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how it seems like it requires really being just very uh, spontaneously attuned to where somebody is right in that moment. That's right. And, And not attuned and helped by the other members of the group, because there might be other members. That's why the beauty of group is that you get the helping hands of other people who may be more in tune than you are at that moment. They've been through that same process. They feel unconsciously linked with that person. They seem to know just the right way to say that person what is needed. They say the right thing. Or they don't have the uh, transference to me. They have a different kind of relational transference laterally for a variety of reasons. What's one of the special things about group 
is that you get all these uh, potential uh, rich resources that you, you don't have an individual. You just have yourself and the person, which is fine enough. But group offers that uh, marvelous resource. So many different emotional nutrients they can get from other people. Right, right. It's like a buffet. Well, and you talk about really the creative potential when we're able to be fully available to love and hate. Yeah. And I I was wondering if you might say a little bit more about that, the kind of creative potential of it, the the power of anger and love when we're really able to uh, be with it within ourselves and relationally with others. Well, I think so much energy is utilized by a group or person in fighting these feelings, struggling with these feelings. Uh, So it harnesses off a lot of energy. It can deaden a group. It could deaden a self. Person doesn't feel free. They're afraid of being humiliated or being damaged or being damaging or fragmenting. Uh, they, they don't have a sense of freedom to have a self. They don't have the space to have a self. They're too terrified or uh, maybe not even aware of the feeling where they, had, they have historical experience, terrible experiences of not being protected. All kinds of things come up. So the group, for a variety of reasons, strangle themselves in some ways by, by, uh, by trying to cut off these feelings. So a lot of energy, of, instead of going to a creative self, is used. Like, it's like being having a cold and fighting off an illness. And uh, if, if you can uh, help a person uh, resolve their fear and resistances, their blocks to having their anger and their love, they don't have to feel that they're going to dissolve or be overtaken, overcome, engulfed, consumed, lose their sobriety, uh, merge, exploited. All, all, of, all the myriad of, of terrible experiences that could happen or may have happened, if that somehow can be talked about rather than People are entrapped in a kind of crippling state. If they can be free at least to talk about their terror and then move in by just doing that, they see that the same historic experience hasn't happened, that they're having, even if some of these experiences get played in the group, I or other people are providing a different outcome. They begin to internalize a a different set of good experiences. There's a freeing in the body and the freeing in the self, all that energy used to stifle experience is now used to have experience. And that's an integrative experience. And suddenly that energy is now part of a life force that can lead to creativity, to humor, to vitality. The group suddenly feels lively. It feels like room. There's emotional room. in the group. What was feeling dead before and gloomy and why am I in this group? I don't know another group. Suddenly, it feels like endless possibilities. The same group of people that seemed like annoying and dead now seem like a source of creativity, if you can resolve that. Mm -hmm. So much more trust, so much more energy to just move in all sorts of directions. Yeah, it's like you're like loosely fitting clothes. Those words, endless possibilities, makes me think about your writing on hope and how our early lives influence the kind of hope that we bring to our relationships. So I was wondering if you would say something about 
your exploration into different forms of hope that you write about in Idealized Hope and Hopelessness? What, what I talk about in that paper, I, I think of it in terms of uh, progressive and regressive forms of hope. Hope is an inspiration, provides us in a time of great adversity, something to move on to, and it's a very important thing to have. But uh, sometimes hope can be uh, what I refer to as idealized, like something pie in the sky kind of hope. It's a magical hope. In itself, isn't bad to have a hope that may seem a little unrealistic, but if you, if you can uh, uh, have some, if it, it paves the way for relating and engagement, and moving you out of uh, isolation, I think that that's still very good. It's the problem that I talk about in that paper is a malignant kind of idealized hope when a person has, uh, well, it, it behaviorally, it looks like somebody discounting and constantly denigrating. Nobody's ever good enough because there's a fantasized idea that somebody is going to be perfect out there and rescue you from the despair that you carry around, the emptiness, which comes from early failed dependency experiences. And so there's a magical idea of having the perfect person, and why should I settle? And so the person lives in waiting rather than relating. They're waiting for a wish fulfillment rather than relating and engaging. And I think what makes us integrate experiences is, is to engage in life and engage with people. And if you cut yourself off for close experiences, then you uh, arrest your development. And people who have these, what I refer to as malignant idealized hope, they're, they're attached to uh, this fantasy. It's their only relationship is a fantasy of this perfection. And it keeps them from looking, or they denigrate what's around as not being good enough. Uh, they keep themselves from living. That's the paper I wrote. Essentially, I talk about mature hope, where you can uh, tolerate disappointment, but it's not. It doesn't. If you get disappointed, it is disappointing not to have a certain thing you wish for happen, hope for happen. But it doesn't mean you're less than. You don't lose your self worth. The problem is when. The disappointment is so great that you lose your sense of self. And that's because the sense of self is fragile to begin with. And with people with malignant hope, with idealization, they're like betting all their sense of self on this magical other. So in the course of treatment, one has to develop a stronger sense of self. It's all about the thing, developing a stronger sense of self. How do we do that? Mm-hmm. And, and you mentioned in this that sometimes actually group is a much better venue for working on these themes than individual. Right. It is because it offers, again, all these different people, different possibilities. The person might be too so vulnerable and, and just to, or mistrustful, paranoid or mistrustful to be in the clutches of an individual therapist and feel deeply, although you know, uh, if if you can, if that can work, of course that's great. If they can manage through that, they will, they too will evolve in integration. But in a group, they can work this out in a group because they have uh, siblings now to work 
They can have a, a variety of relationships and they can have people create some insulation so they don't have to feel overwhelmed by the dependency and they have more room to accept some dependency over time. And in accepting dependency, they become more autonomous in a paradoxical way. They become freer to have a self, to have a voice, to have uh, experience, to say their thoughts and feelings. Saying your thoughts and feelings define you as a self. And so they're more able to do that. They're less fearful of damaging the leader or the leader damaging them. They have protection. They have a squad. Certain kind of person, certain kind of people cannot be an individual treatment. You would think uh, some people can't be in group. It doesn't feel safe enough. There are also some people who can't be in individual treatment. It doesn't feel safe enough. Uh, they need they need the group. And in the paper that I wrote, it was combined treatment. The person was both in group and individual. Now that person was a very denigrating, devaluing person. I mentioned the paper. I needed the group as much to hold me through the devaluement and denigration, as much as the patient needed the group to develop uh, experiences. This person denigrated so much she didn't have a sense of a of a have. She came from emptiness and nothing, and suddenly the group gave her a have experience. She now had peers that were interested in her. It became a really great experience for her. Well, I love the way you talk about really how the group becomes a container for both of your feelings. Right. So that you guys right. can just sustain being with each other. Right. We, we, needed, we needed the group. I often find that with a certain kinds of, uh, I mean, it's another great thing about group is that the group holds and contains the leader as much as it holds the members. Just, just having these other people there to share and create transitional reflective space together. Well, you mentioning transitional reflective space feels like a bridge into talking about the paper you wrote on the 2016 election and its aftermath, where you reflected on the group dynamics that we saw playing out in society and around the world and really are continuing to see. So I was wondering if you would say something about that paper and some of the insights that you shared from a group analytic perspective, as well as uh, just your overall inspiration for writing it. But th that paper, I was interested in the relationship, the interactional relationship. How did it happen that, uh, that this happened? Someone who no one expected, uh, or at least the majority of people didn't expect. I shouldn't say no one, but the majority of people didn't expect uh, Trump to be a success. It just seemed to all the established thinkers that uh, Clinton would win. Uh, so I was interested in, and he seemed in, uh, to be uh, transgressive in so many ways. Some people would see that is was a creative revolutionary act, and he's experienced by his supporters as a champion of so many things that they felt overlooked or not seen or or uh, feel that they have in cultural wars and other ways been uh, not taken seriously enough. But for most people in 2016 thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. And so I was interested, how did this all happen? And I was interested both from a, from a citizen as an American citizen and uh, a person that I supported Hillary Clinton. And I supported more than that. I was concerned about uh, 
Trump's transgressive behaviors and, uh, and to what degree he was uh, operating in a demagogic way. And that frightened me. I felt very aroused. But I want to understand the arousal that was going on me and in the country. People were anxious. The country was polarized, more polarized than I had seen even in the, the Vietnam period, I think. It seemed really more dangerous to me than my experience as a student when Nixon was president. So I, I wrote about it. I was interested in seeing what is this interaction? What was the emotional communication Trump had with, with the group, with the nation, with his, the group of his supporters, as well as how was he commuting, communicating to, uh, his, to, the, to other people that equally feel aroused, but more in terror rather than in enjoyment? So that, that was part of the sparks. And also, I'm, con- I'm concerned as a, uh, as a post-war, born post-World War II person, have a sensitivity around autocratic behavior and democracy that seems in jeopardy. And it seemed like the country um, had a lot of problems. The trauma, as I saw it. So I looked at the environment. What happened to create this unusual situation of someone who takes such transgressive behavior in terms of, of uh, the way he considers government, attacks on government, attacks on press, his uh, vulgarity, his, his uh, transactional values, the what seemed to me a demagogic experience, I was wondering, what was this about? So I saw it as first that there was a trauma in the country, traumatic experiences. And I list that paper about eight traumas that was going on rapid change in the culture around the world. And I list several. I, I don't know if I have all in my head, but they include the imbalance in America, and particularly in, imbalance of uh, rich and poor, economic insecurity, the uh, recent uh, having a black American as, as president, uh, the internet changes, climate changes, cultural war changes in terms of gender, gun violence, uh, gun control, immigration. Uh, there were a variety of things which seemed rapid, the inability to assimilate as a group, as a nation, these rapid changes causing feelings to feel human. people, some people, not all, winners certainly didn't, but those who felt overlooked, felt cheated, exploited, humiliated. And uh, Trump had a unique capacity to uh, tune in emotionally, uh, where Clinton had policies and spoke in what seemed a rational way, stronger together. Trump went right to the source of emotional feelings. He went on make America great again. You could hear the experience of people who felt lost, that they wasn't, uh, that they'd been uh, forgotten, that they, they didn't count. So he, he understands, he's had an understanding of emotional communication. So I was interested in that interaction of how, uh, when there is a traumatic experience in a large group or a national population, they're looking for a leader to feel understood, and he was able to understand them. And then the group starts imbuing the leader with power. So it's a reciprocal interaction, and Trump was able to respond and exploit it. And what that does then is that 
the, the group that feels connected to Trump, specifically in an emotional way, not just using him for their own economic advantage, but those who really feel understood, need Trump to feel, uh, to be great so that they could feel great. And so it's an, uh, it's an emotional bond that where facts and rational thought really does not matter. It's impervious. It's all about feelings. So it's, again, my interest in primitive emotional communication. And I was also interested in the attack on thought, where when feelings become so uh, important, that is the rule, and thought becomes, starts uh, being assaulted. Facts don't matter. Saying falsehoods, lies, denigration of institutions as provide containing and holding functions, all those things that will create space to have reflection starts being assaulted. But all important is loyalty, allegiance. So uh, that also was concerning me, the attack on thinking. So that's the kind of things that I was writing about in that paper and how the importance of uh, activism is, uh, social activism, not just uh, it's important to have a right to citizen, but you can't depend on, uh, no matter what your position is for Trump or, or against him, you can't rely on a passive de dependent position that expects that democracy is going to always be there, that we must have a social activism, uh, both to maintain a democratic pursuit. And I think our groups, in a way, a little democratic, you know, we say people, we want to invite them to have their thoughts and feelings. Essentially, we're creating a, demo a certain kind of democratic process in a group, not that we give up our, our leadership. But we're creating a space where like, people can have their thoughts and feelings. And in a, in a country where democracy is in jeopardy, thinking is we're not free to think. We become afraid. In uh, authoritarian states, thought is underground. Um, so we need to be politically and socially active-minded citizens, both to, to preserve democracy and to keep our minds would be uh, the same in having uh, authoritarian parents or disturbed parents and how that affects the minds. Now, since I wrote that paper, I've been very interested, even in a deeper way, uh, about how uh, the leader arouses the country. And I've been looking at uh, Laplanche and Lacan in particular as helping me understand how uh, Trump is arousing both his supporters and his dissenters. Both are aroused by him. And and I'm trying to understand that. And I see that as he he enters into our unconscious in a very arousing way, not just as not just as a, a representative of a, a disorganized object. So people who, for example, if they had a dysfunctional alcoholic father, they might be terrified of a dysfunction, you know, it's just some out-of-control person creating anxiety uh, for some. That was actually the case of some patients that I had, but he's arousing in how he communicates. He enters into the unconscious, invades your unconscious, and arouses experiences. And I think uh, arouses, uh, Laplanche in particular has interesting ideas about that. I thought that could be applied in understanding how tra his transgressive behaviors are primitive communications in themselves that are unleashing primitive states of mind 
in individual subgroup and large group experience. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like just the ability to uh, be so arousing or overstimulating the way that generates so much excess, it becomes its own kind of attack on thinking. Right. Laplanche has this idea, a very brilliant theorist. He had the idea, from what I understand, that the mother, the caregiver, transmits enigmatic messages to the infant, uh, sexual messages that are not uh, even understood by the, the mother. And that it gets transplanted and develops the unconscious in the child, some of which does not get metabolized, some does, and it, or gets repressed, becomes symbolized. But there's always parts that haven't been metabolized, these raw primitive states that have been transmitted from the parent. And traumatic, traumatic experiences outside can provoke the unsettling of these experiences and create new traumas, new shocks. And I think, in a way, his uh, Trump's prim- the way he speaks and enters in and speaks in these kind of primitive motion way and the bombardment of Twitter, it, it kind of enters the mind and moves past kind of reflective space and you're just, it's just inside of you, is, is very arousing. Anyway, these are the kind of thoughts that I'm having. Interested in how he's so arousing. Mm. And then it's, it's also, I think, the, the, uh, the whole climate that then gets created around the, the, him and the entire political situation. It's just kind of like this turbulent climate of anti thinking. There's right. just constant yes. sort of information. Yes, it's dangerous. Uh, Hannah Rent talks about the beginning of totalitarianism, of the, uh, the, uh, what, the inability to have uh, reflective thinking. She refers to that with Eichmann, uh, the uh, beginning of tyranny. But it comes, you know, the culture, because of these traumas, are in a paranoid, polarized state. That, uh, so we have uh, hate crimes and discharge, you know, attacking of other. It's, it's very, very, we don't have a unified figure to, uh, that's bringing the country together. We have somebody's fomenting divisiveness and so and the country has been divided for the different uh, traumatic experiences all over the world today uh london got out of brexit and today there's been the impeachment trial and uh, worldwide there's been uh, tremendous stress what do we do with this what do we do what do we do with this I, I, i wish i knew Right now, I'm just studying it. Just like an analyst, I'm studying my experience and trying to think about it and write about it and understand what yet is to be formulated about it. I think what I do suggest for my paper is social activism to stay, stay awake and to, and to engage in the process, to not surrender to apathy. Well, I enjoyed, uh, as kind of an extension of that, the way you talked about the danger of going into dependency and thinking about um, kind of Beyond's ideas around the basic assumptions and dependency being one of them. And the more regressed a group's in, it's easy to kind of just think, oh, well, Mueller will will be the savior or this other kind of entity. Right. Impeachment, Mueller. For those who, uh, Trump is the savior for those who are for him and he's the anti-Fanat. And so you're looking for other idealized saviors. 
And those are dependencies that interfere with social activism. Miller will save us. It's a fantasy, savior fantasy. It's a manic defense or um, impeachment. Uh, these are all aspects of, of dependency, both, both the supporters and the dissenters. It, I find it very upsetting, the, um, the lack of, uh, of having a leader that's bringing a sense of a... We're not in a place of it, like what Climate referred to, a depressive position of, of the common good. It didn't resonate. When Hillary can stronger together, What's, we're not together. What together? Or saying, um, America's great already. You know, that's, people didn't feel they were great already. Everybody was, it's, it's been, there's more of a sense of each group is, it's the dog-eat-dog world trends. And the culture has uh, encouraged it. The economy, capitalism, which has been entrepreneurial, has also been out for yourself. It's not a sense of commonality, common good. It's, it's more extreme than I've seen. It kind of reinforces just a sense of fragmentation. Yeah. You're out for yourself. I mean, of course, there are a lot of good Samaritans still in the world, but as a culture, transactional. It was like epitomized in the impeachment recently with the Dershowitz saying, if the president thinks he, he, he can do almost, he walked back on it, but it a little bit, but he was saying, defending uh, Trump's position that if he thinks, the president thinks, that he, he can do something that might be seen as improper, it's not improper if he feels like it's for the sake of the nation, even if it's, if he's uh, doing something for his personal good, but he can justify it as a, a good for the nation in some way, then it's... Uh, and I'm, giving, I'm even saying it more positive than, than he mentioned. It seemed as if he was giving him carte blanche, which I found extremely upsetting. Reinforcing a sense of uh, a king. King. Rather, yeah. There's a primitive omnipotence that, that he's, you know, this, this is in the culture of omnipotence. So it's, uh, we just had a few years ago the Me Too movement and omnipotence being stopped. But the, the idea of omnipotence having its, it still show you know, one can do anything. It worries them. These elements in society, it's not the full case. It's worrisome to me. Sure. Then the, um, what can happen just by the identification with an omnipotent leader? Yeah, right. Well, these rise in hate crimes. But as I said, on the other hand, people feel very understood. The people who feel like he's a champion, people who feel he's just the right guy for the right situation. Well, I'm thinking about if the dilemma is really being in these polarized subgroups, the way in which group therapy can really function in some ways as in its own way, the ultimate sort of grassroots in terms of facilitating dialogue and yeah. conversation and emotional right. communication between people, people of mm -hmm. difference. But this being an election year and just given some of the, the kind of visceralness of the feelings that it can stir up inside of us as leaders, even. Yeah. I'm curious, any thoughts that you have about working and leading groups during an election year? You know, I'm in a relatively uh, blue state, largely uh, homogenous, but not completely. There are Trump, I, I see Trump voters and, and, uh, and non, mostly non-Trump voters, but 
but some Trump voters, less less so than than in other states and other cities. And they've been in my groups, but they're the minority, and I have to operate so that uh, they're protected and insulated and uh, have a fair fair experience and having their thoughts and feelings and safe experience and listen to and help that person listen to what other people uh, have to say as well. So it's not, it's just a a way of, it's just another thing to have to work with in terms of helping people uh, have experience and not not, uh, sacrificing the other for that, not to act out polarization and act it out, the scapegoating, uh, scapegoating the Trump voter, scapegoating, it's not a red state, so we're a non-Trump voter, it might be the mirror image in a red state, in my state I have to operate fundamentals about scapegoating, uh, with, with, uh, typically with the Trump voters. They have to feel that I if not, that I, as a leader, can uh, contain this, if they can. They have to feel safe, at least with me, mm-hmm. even if they don't feel safe with each other. Right. Now, either group can have a person that is provocative and obnoxious and could create uh, attacks from who just not because of the content, but because of their personality, or they might be reacting. They may fear that they're not, they don't belong, and so they're going to act. They may act. This happens not, I have a situation in a group where I have a person who, a woman who just attacks, and then she's, she's vulnerable, but she attacks, so she gets scapegoated, and I have to interfere with that, even though she does things to bring it on. That's not about politics. That's just the dynamic of the situation. And that can happen in politics, too, where somebody has a viewpoint and they're provocative, either compensating, whatever the situation is, they're creating a problem and they have to, have to interfere with that so they, or find out what that's about, why they need to do that. I'd have to work on that relational piece. That, that transcends the political stuff. Political stuff is just another way of getting to the character analysis. It's very important. Uh, so I run all, I, I'm a speaker in a number of organizations that I get invited to. It, it's very important uh, when I run these workshops that the person has the sense that I'm robust enough to contain what primitive forces might come in this group. They really, really need to know that there's someone there. That's the major thing. It's not really so much content, but they get a sense that I can welcome it or I can take their aggression or I will limit it if it becomes destructive. I will contain it. I'll stop it. I'll, I'll invite it. I'll do whatever is needed, but I'm available and I will not fall apart or retaliate, but I will regulate it in some way so that it will be okay enough for the group. Somehow that has to be emotionally communicated to groups uh, in dealing with whether it's political or whether it's your just your group therapy or workshops or whatever kind of group you're doing, that the leader does provide this kind of containing function that is really very important when uh, uh, managing these primitive 
or as you're working with primitive destructive forces in groups, they have to know you can handle it. They, they start to believe that when they see you in action. To really sense that and feel you in the room. Yeah, they feel it. I mean, it's, it can't be, you can't say, well, you know, I'll take it. No, they have to see it, they have to witness it, they have to test it, they have to see what it looks like. They have to know. Well, I'm thinking about this piece around containment and the leaders even having a felt sense of containment within themselves. And one of the things that I felt when I was reading the Trump article was that it was really actually a a source of containment in and of itself, like a a declaration of thinking and using some of the ideas from different theoretical positions to actually contain and then to create some sort of understanding around what what it is that's occurring. Right. And that kind of... That's a wonderful way of articulating it really made me think, with all the different papers that you've written, the way writing can actually do that. Right. And I wondered if there would be anything you'd want to say about your experience as a writer, writing about these different themes, how you know when you have an idea that you want to write about, uh, what your creative process looks like, anything in terms of how writing fits into your professional life. Well, I find writing hard. Sometimes I find it compelling. I get an idea, and I feel it's, I, I tend to prefer speaking, so I, I, I get invited to speak. But I, um, I, I seem to need to figure this out for myself in some way. It's like compelling. It's like something I'm compelled to do. It's a, a creation of myself in some way, I'm trying to figure this out. What is this about? How can I understand it? I get a clearer sense of my own self in doing that. So there's a driving force in me of some kind of, uh, of having a self. This is part of my self journey, figuring things out, trying to explore different things, trying to understand a dynamic, whether it's a character dynamic, an interpersonal group, subgroup, large group dynamic, uh, it's a social political event. Trying to understand what's going on. What's going on here? What's going on? It's uh, this is a upsetting situation. What's going on? I don't understand this. I want to understand this better. And so it's a journey writing a paper. Sometimes I feel like by the time I finish the paper, I'm ready to write it. It's, it's the, rather than. So now, I, now I'm ready to write the paper once I'm finished. Now I know what I'm writing about. I'm writing to find out what I'm thinking. It's a creative process. I've always had that in me, I think. I had to go into a field that expressed myself in some way. Could have been theater or teaching, something where I'm in, that the instrument, I use myself. It had to be that. So now it's also in writing a bit. It's finding and refinding yourself. Freud talks about finding love as refinding love, you know, the lost love object. But I think there's a finding and refinding of yourself. And that happens in the creative process. Mm-hmm. And part of the creative process is what we do as clinicians and working with people. We help, not only do we, they help, hopefully, if we're working well, they become, uh, they find themselves, they rediscover, recover themselves we do too Mm, that's beautiful that's why it's so compelling 
really a privilege that we're in this work and we get paid for it. It's really a racket here. It's really great. Mm-hmm. So vitalizing. Yeah. Well, that actually brings me to my final question, which is just, um, what are you refinding about yourself now or what is uh, most compelling to you? What's most exciting to you on the horizon? Well, it's mentioning, you know, this Trump has been very preoccupying. So I've been studying large social groups, which was mentioned with the Laplanche things and arousal and sexuality. So I've been involved with that. I'm going to be responding in London to someone who's going to be talking about misogyny. So I'm studying issues around, uh, it's all about having a self. No matter what I talk about, it's all about having a self. And whether it's the cultural domination that interferes with it or whatever is going around, it's all about having a self. You know, we, we are lucky to have um, psychology and psychoanalysis and group analysis provides as vehicles to work on this stuff, to explore, investigate, to experience. And it changes as we de- developmentally uh, age. We we learn different things. We bring different things to it as we different. We're in different developmental phases. Clinicians, different parts of our lives. It's like an artist, I suppose, with an easel, canvas, and different times. Something they interact in a different way, but there's something always happening. Something new coming alive. Something new, except when it's not. And then you have to figure out what that's about. Well, Ronnie, I just want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. And this itself has been incredibly lively. And I've really enjoyed the opportunity to hear all of your thoughts. And I know our listeners will as well. Well, thank you for having me. You've been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Group Dynamics Dispatch, the official podcast of the Four Corners Group Psychotherapy Society. If you enjoyed what you just heard and would like to support the show, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any feedback for us or have suggestions for featured guests and topics, please feel free to email us at podcast at fcgps.org. Also, visit our website to stay updated on future conferences, workshops, and training programs, fcgps.org. We appreciate your listening and support and hope to see you at one of our events soon.